0: We're going to be wrapping up all of these things that we've been learning in the last weeks and, and uh, I know that it, it's been complicated and I know that um, we've stretched your minds and uh, hopefully we've answered a lot of the questions in a way that satisfies you at least to some degree and uh, this morning I hope to kind of finish up the whole series by wrapping up the mini-series within the series on law and grace and so that's what we're going to do this morning as you begin to study Old Testament issues, you realize how vast they are. You may think that, oh, we've been here forever. I mean, we've beat this, you know, topic into powder. But really, uh, there is so much more. We've just scratched the tip of the iceberg. You begin to understand what what Paul meant when he described in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, the the depth. And the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. He says how unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. God's word is an endless mind that we can dig from. And so um, I don't even pretend to have addressed any issue completely. We have only just addressed them so that you can have a basic understanding. And hopefully you'll do some more study on your own. But you have learned that this topic of law and grace is difficult. I'm I'm sure you've seen how it's difficult. There are a lot of issues related to law and grace because the law of Moses is overarching in the Old Testament. And yet we are told in the New Testament we are not under the law of Moses And yet we are told that all scripture is profitable. And so there's some conflict in most people's minds trying to figure out just how the Old Testament applies. So we have been working and working and working on this issue, especially this issue of law and grace when god 's people, Israel were under the Old covenant law system, um, they did things uh, differently because the law of Moses told them to do different things do things differently. But in the New Testament, we are under the law of Christ, and so the law of Christ tells us to do some things differently than the old testament law system, or the old covenant, or the law of Moses. Uh, for instance, we don't sacrifice anymore. The the civil government situation is different. Uh, the laws of the clean and the unclean were just some examples that we we gave out. We don't have to uh, obey those specific commands. We are not under the law of Moses as a law system anymore. Now you can find laws in the law of Moses that still apply to believers because they are repeated. Um, we found out that the law of Christ overlaps the law of Moses. So the law of Moses says don't murder and the law of Christ says don't murder. And the law of Christ says don't steal and the law of Moses says don't steal. And the reason for that is because both law systems were written by the same God and both law systems are based off the two principles of loving God and loving your neighbor. And so that's what we learned um, kind of so far in a very uh, condensed nutshell. But this morning we want to look at some other Names that are given in the New Testament which describe the law system we are under as believers, and that is the um, law of Christ, as we discovered last week. Last week we looked at this phrase, law of Christ, and we noted that Christians are under law while being under grace. Paul says that he was under the law of Christ. And we discovered that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21, and also in Galatians 6, verse 2. So we're going to look at some synonyms to the new covenant law system, the law of Christ, and we want to clarify or define the content of the law. So we know we are to obey the law of Christ, but what does that mean specifically? Just what are we supposed to do um, uh, specifically, a law of Christ is a general term, but wh- what is the contents of that law so that 's what we 're going to attempt to do this morning. so, if you have your Bibles, the first place I want you to turn is James chapter one, James chapter one, verse nineteen so if you could turn there we 're going to look at um, James chapter one. And uh, I'm just going to read this section. James is writing to believers who are suffering, who are you know, being persecuted and all sorts of things. And what James wants, James wants them to do is, is, he wants them to learn how to live for Christ under any circumstance. He wants them to learn how to follow Christ even under trial. And this is what he says in verse... Um, 19, and I'm going to um, read on down uh, through um, 25, and as I read, I want you to note that James is somebody writing in the New Testament under the law of Christ, and I want you to notice just in this section how many laws James lists, do's and don'ts. That's what I mean by laws. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be, "...quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves." Now, this is a very interesting section. It's interesting because in the core of this section, James says, I want you to to fulfill or walk according to or obey the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Law and liberty. You would think of laws as being binding, not liberating. And here, just in these verses, he says, Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, put aside all filthiness, put aside any remnant of wickedness, humbly receive God's word, obey God's word, don't delude yourself by walking in disobedience to God's word, look at the perfect law, the law of liberty, abide by the perfect law of liberty, don't forget the perfect law of liberty, and obey the perfect law of liberty effectually. Now that doesn't sound like an antinomian, a lawless one, does it? It's exactly opposite. He is placing his readers under the authority of the perfect law of liberty. He's saying, You do this. And he describes it in the context here as the word. The word received. Now, he uses a great illustration here of a mirror. I like this place, this little illustration, this place in the book of James, because he uses lots of word pictures. And here, he talks about the mirror, the word of God being a mirror. And you know what mirrors are for. You look at them to see how you're doing. And if you stand far back and you look at a mirror, you look fine. It's when you get close that it gets scary, doesn't it? When you get close, you start saying, my goodness, some caverns in my face. It looks like craters of the moon the closer you get. There's imperfections and little moles and funny looking hairs sticking out. And you're thinking, my, I better step back. And that's exactly what's going on in this text. He says, You know, a man comes to the Word of God, this perfect law, this law of liberty, and he looks intently at it. That's good if he abides by it. But if he pulls back from it, if you pull back from the word, you forget how ugly you are. You forget how sinful you are. When you don't have God's word reflecting itself upon you, you forget what kind of person, you forget what your blemishes are. That's why he is exhorting, I want you to stay in front of the mirror, get close, see the imperfections, and do what is right. That's what he's arguing here. Now, what's interesting though is he uses this phrase in verse 25, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, this man is the blessed man. Law and liberty seem to be contradictions in terms. And part of it is because we read texts like you know, Galatians 5.1 where Paul talks to the Judaizers who were trying to be saved by grace and works, which is basically salvation by works, which is basically no salvation at all. And he says, you, by trying to keep both the law of Christ and the law of Moses, have fallen from grace and you are putting yourself under the yoke of, of slavery. But we can't take a verse like that and ignore its context and then foist it upon the text that we are looking at. It is true that Israel as a nation was under the law of Moses, wasn't it? And it is true that the people of Israel, those people were all under the law even though there was only a remnant of Of true believers. This meant. All the rest of the people. Who were unbelievers. Under the law of Moses. Were all on their own. In the flesh. Trying to please God. Which of course you can never do. You remember Abraham is the one who believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Just like. And we learned this before. Believers today believe God. In Jesus Christ, and it is reckoned to them as righteousness. Christ's righteousness is given to us. And we know that whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, if you are a believer, God gives you strength to do his will. He gives you resources, especially in the New Testament as you have the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual gifts, you have the church, you have all of these resources in Christ, you have forgiveness, you have atonement and justification and propitiation and all those shun words we don't know the meaning to. And those words are all true of us. And we have all of these resources, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ to do everything that God wants us to do. But a person under the Old Testament law As an unbeliever, could not, could not walk before God in holiness. It is only through faith that we have holiness. But even in the midst of the law, you see the psalmist saying something like this. In Psalm 119.45, he says, I walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. Now how could even somebody under the Mosaic law system say, I walk at liberty because I seek your precepts. What is it about the law of God that is liberating? How can a believer walk at liberty though they are under do's and don'ts? Well, do you remember what we learned from 1 Timothy 6 when we were talking about slaves and master? We learned that all people are slaves. You are either slaves of Jesus Christ. You have either been purchased by the blood of Christ and you are no longer your own, but you are to walk according to Christ. And he is your master. You are his servant, his slave. Or you are of your father, the what? The devil. You were of your father, the devil. And that is why Paul says what he does, doesn't he? In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, when he says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, speaking of spiritual death, in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he says, and we too were all living in the lust of our flesh and a mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the wrath. totally held captive, the scriptures say by Satan to do his will, unable to please God in any way or in any degree as an unbeliever. Paul said something similar in Titus 3.3 when he said, For we also were once foolish ourselves, listen to this, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now think about this. Paul said that about himself. And he was a Jew. A Jew under the law of Moses, a Pharisee, and in Paul's own words, according to the law, found blameless. But under the law of Moses, even though externally he was doing everything he was supposed to do, he was enslaved to his lusts, enslaved to corruption. Peter in 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19 describes the unbelieving false teachers with these words. Listen to what what Peter says about unbelievers and what they're enslaved to. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome by this he is enslaved Second Peter 2 18 and 19. If you're overcome by sin, you are a slave to sin. That's what Peter says. that's what Paul says. That's what the word of God says. People, lawlessness isn't freedom. That is a lie. Lawlessness is slavery to sin and Satan and corruption. It is freedom, the law of Christ... Not because you become lawless, but because you are rescued from the curse of the law and because you are given all the resources you need to fulfill the very purpose of your existence, which is to give glory to God. God not only saves you unworthily, he gifts you unworthily, he empowers you unworthily so you can walk with him as an unworthy sinner. He gives you all the resources you need to fulfill the law of Christ. And that's what he wants all of us to do. This is why James calls the law of Christ the perfect law of liberty. It is liberating from slavery to sin and Satan because the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. Now there is another name for the law of Christ that James uses in this same context in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Let me just summarize the preceding verses. After, After he's talking about at the end of one, be doers of the word. Be effectual doers of the word. Receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Do it. Then he says, let me tell you how. He says, don't show partiality. And there must have been some problems he knew about people showing partiality to the rich or whatever, the famous. And so he goes on and beats them up about showing partiality and calls it evil and making evil distinctions. And now in verse 8, he is going to explain the opposite of showing partiality. And then he's going to talk about partiality more. But notice what he says in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Here James explains that if you are Fulfilling or obeying the royal law, which is found in scripture. And he defines it as the word, the word of righteousness here. You are doing well. And he says this law is fulfilled and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, does that so- sound familiar? Well, that's exactly what we read was the law of Christ, Right? In Galatians 6.2, we looked at Galatians 5.14. It talked about how love, loving your neighbors yourself is the fulfillment of the law. And that's exactly what he says here about this royal or sovereign law. But look at James 2.9. He continues. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's what he's talking about in the near preceding context. This whole idea business of partiality. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by, here's our chapter one reference, the law of liberty. Now what's interesting about this is he's saying listen he says if love is the fulfillment of the law the royal law is love your neighbors yourself and you show love towards your neighbor by not scoping up on his wife committing adultery or whatever but you murder him you haven't showed love towards him i mean what good is it to say well i've loved him if you've killed him I mean, that's pretty silly, isn't it? It's so crystal clear. No, love does everything that is required of love and leaves out nothing. You know, a lot of people think that the New Testament is some sort of lowered standard, some sort of law system that's made so easy that we don't have to do anything. Listen, it's not even close. The standard is higher, but the divine resources are far greater. What we have in Christ is everything we need. And here he says, I want you to love your neighbor and fulfill the royal law, which at the end of this section in verse 12 is the law of liberty. Now, what's weird about this section is he quotes the law of Moses in between the sandwich with the slice of bread, the royal law, and the other slice of bread, the law of liberty. In between, he quotes the law of Moses, a couple of the Ten Commandments. And you're thinking, what is going on here? Why if James is... is is teaching New Testament truth, the law of Christ, if he is teaching that, then why does he quote from the law of Moses? Because this is a classic example of an overlap. The law of Christ teaches you shouldn't commit adultery or murder. Now, he could have quoted the New Testament, but the New Testament wasn't written. So he quotes from the law of Moses, not to say you are now under the law of Moses, but he's saying this is an example of laws. And if you break laws which are designed to enable you to show love towards your neighbor, you are a transgressor of the whole thing because the entire law, as we have learned, is summed up in what? Love God, love your neighbor, and You could say, not only is the Old Testament summed up in all the prophets and love God and love your neighbor, but the New Testament is summed up in that same two commands. You are fulfilling the law if you're loving God and loving your neighbor according to the scripture. Now there is another phrase. Not only do we have the law of Christ, the law of liberty, and the royal law, but there's another phrase, and I'm going to bring this in because it directly relates, and that is the new commandment. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 13 verses 34 and 35 as he's speaking to his disciples and he says a new commandment I give unto you. You know, the 11th commandment or whatever. What is that? That you love one another even as I have loved you so that also, you love one another. By this, all men you will, know, will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That was Jesus' new commandment. Now, what's interesting is when John records what Jesus said was the new commandment, John talks about it in more detail in 1 John. So turn there, 1 John. Chapter 2. Get all these new commandment verses roped in and then we'll make some comments. Look at what he says in verse 7 of 1 John 2. Now this is the same John who wrote what Jesus said and recorded it in John 13, 34 and 35. John also writes, beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you. But an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. Which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And you're thinking, well, are you vacillating, John? Is it new or is it old? Is this a new commandment or not? Oh, yes, it's it's an old commandment. But it's a new commandment. But it's a new commandment. But it's not an old commandment. But it's new. It's old what is it? Well, look at what he says. The one who says, verse 9, he is in light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you were to turn to Second John, that large book right after this one, and you look at verse 5, he mentions this new commandment again. He says, "Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning that we what? Love one another." Now the question here is this, why did Jesus in John 13:34 say, "I am writing you A new commandment that you love one another. Because that part was quoted in Leviticus 19.18. He was quoting the law of Moses. Well what makes the commandment new. The commandment that Jesus gave in John 13.34. Is this qualifying phrase. As I have loved you. Jesus says, listen, here's the new commandment. Love each other, love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19.18, as I have loved you. That is the new part. Jesus loved and showed us how to love. That is why we study the life of Christ to see how he did it. When you look at Jesus, what do you see him doing? Well, all you see him doing is things like calling unworthy disciples, training unworthy disciples, feeding unworthy disciples, teaching unworthy disciples, healing the sick, um, you see him dealing with all manner of people, with humble people. You see him with great patience and gentleness, just nurturing these people who are humble and broken and contrary to spirit. And then you see him with people who are religious hypocrites, and he just rebukes them sharply. This is how Jesus teaches us how to love people. He showed his disciples how to minister to other people in a way that gives God glory, and he showed them perfectly Jesus showed them how to respond to all sorts of people and all sorts of places for the glory of God. And he did that all through his life. As I have loved you makes the new commandment new. The old part is love your neighbors yourself. Now remember the definition of love that we have used? Let me remind you of it. Biblical love is doing what is best for the other person according to the word of God for the glory of God. That in a nutshell is a good definition. It's when you sacrifice, when you do whatever you need to do to help that other person do what is best for them. Not what is expedient, not what feels good all the time, not what's easy, but what's best for them, according to the scriptures, for the motive of the glory of God. That's what true biblical love is. And that is what Jesus always did. That's what he did. This is why love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, do you remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, you know how?" How can I inherit eternal life? Do you remember that story? And Jesus told the rich young ruler to keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, which one? This is Matthew 19. He says, which one? And he says, well, try this. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. Of course, the rich running ruler says, I got those perfectly. He was deceived, but... What's interesting about Jesus' commands here is, did you notice what he quoted from? He quoted from what? The Ten Commandments, didn't he? Did you notice what commands he quoted and which ones he did not? Very interesting. He quotes... He quotes the Ten Commandments. Out of the Ten Commandments, those commands that are specifically relating to how to love your neighbor directly. He leaves off, worship God, have no idols, do not take the uh, name of the Lord that God in vain, um, keep ha- uh, holy the Sabbath day. He leaves off, thou shall not covet, and he replaces that with love your neighbors yourself. Leviticus 19.18. He is saying to the rich young ruler, have you done everything you need to do to love your neighbor? And what did the rich young ruler say? No problem. And so what did Jesus say? Okay, go sell all your possessions. And what did he say? No. Because he had a lot of possessions. So Jesus revealed, he exposed that he really wasn't willing to do everything he needed to do to love his neighbor and fulfill the law. And so the man walked away. Now when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? He said, love Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. That's what he said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36-39. He said because love is the fulfillment of the law. Because all the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. And you could say all the law and the prophets and all the New Testament teachings hang on those two commands. Because they do. Love is still the fulfillment of the law. In Romans 13, you can turn there, Romans 13, Paul talks about this. In the context of submitting to the governing authorities. Paul's talking about, listen, you need to submit to the governing authorities because they're placed there by God. They've been put there by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And I want you to know this, that those governing authorities have a right to tax you and you need to pay them. And he says, I don't want you owing any man anything except... Except what? Look at verse 8, love, except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment. It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And again, he takes a sampling of the Ten Commandments, but he only quotes those that are are specifically addressing how we love somebody directly by doing or not doing something to them. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And then what's interesting is in this section, he tacks on, after he quotes some of the Ten Commandments, this Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbors yourself business, just like Jesus did. Just like Paul did in Galatians 5.14. Just like James did in James 2.8. There's a pattern here. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Make sure you don't miss that the law of Christ the law of liberty the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself just as Christ loved us the problem is is you that's pretty easy to say but you know what you can't love your neighbor unless you need you know how God wants you to love your neighbor you can't express love towards God or anyone else unless you know what to do and what not to do. And so now we want to look at, so what is the content of the law system that we are now under as believers under grace? What is the law of Christ? Well, you can say in general that it's love your neighbor. We got that figured out. We know basically what love is, but this is what the law of Christ is. It's whatever Jesus commanded and taught his apostles to go out and preach and teach. Do you remember what happened in the Great Commission after Jesus died, after he was buried, after he rose again, after he commissioned people at the very end and said, you know, go into all the nations, you know, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to observe All that I have commanded you. That people is the content of the law of Christ. But you're going, but Jack, it's still nebulous. Is that what does that mean? So Jesus commissions his apostles, he gifts his apostles, he sends his apostles as authoritative messengers. Those apostles go out and they proclaim the truth, the gospel. The word of Christ, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, the law, the royal law. And they proclaim that and that's what we have in the pages of the New Testament. This is the law of Christ. And that is what we have to live by as believers in the church. We have the law of Christ. And it's spelled out here in all these letters to the churches. Written by those Christ sent to proclaim and teach all that he commanded. This is it. This is it. They were all sent by Christ to obey the command to teach the church all that he had commanded. And when you go to texts like um, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about being a master builder. Do you remember that text? And he says, you know, and other people are laying, or building on top of it, but I'm the one who laid the foundation. And the cornerstone is Christ. And he is the... The foundation that we build on. Was he just saying just the name Jesus? I mean, is he just talking Jesus Christ as an idea? What does he mean when he says Jesus Christ is the foundation that everybody builds on? Well, he's talking, if you go back and read the first chapter and the second chapter, he talks about what that means. He talks about the gospel. He talks about the word of God. He talks about preaching the truth. So all of that is what it means, Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his teaching are all the foundation upon what everybody else builds from. But the apostles laid the foundation. Now, get this here. If you're if you're asleep, wake up now. Because this is what you need to get. We're going to tie everything in to the Old Testament and how to study the Old Testament right now. So we have here on the pages of the New Testament the authoritative Instruction of Christ to us as Christians, New Testament believers under the law of Christ. To tell us what the content of the royal law, the law of liberty, the law of Christ is. And this is what the apostle said. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Paul says whatever was written in the earlier times, Old Testament, was written for our instructions, so we know that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and 11, he talks about the things that happened to those Old Testament saints happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things, the Old Testament is still good for examples. We've learned that Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What this tells us is that all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, is profitable. Now, the Old Testament, we are not under the law of Moses, but the law of Moses. All the laws in the law of Moses contain principles because they are written by the same God and they have driving them the same two commands, love God and love your neighbor. So they all teach us principles on how to live lives of righteousness. They all equip us for every good work. They all teach us how we are going to live lives pleasing to God, not just the New Testament. All the Old Testament was written by God. It is his theology book to teach us about everything he wants us to know. It is how he has related to men in the past. How he has wanted them to relate to him. And we can learn from all of that. We can learn about God. From the pages of God's book. Every page. And so when you go to the Old Testament. You look for God. You look and find out. What God is like, what God is doing, what he has said, what he has done, how he has responded, how he wants men to respond, how, he's, how he has um, laid out the future. All those things are contained in the pages of the Old Testament. And it doesn't matter whether you're studying prophecy or narrative or poetry or anything like that. You can find God in all of that because it's all his book. And it all teaches us about him. So don't neglect the Old Testament. It is all the word of God. If you only dally in the New Testament and maybe Psalms, what you're doing is you're only eating one of the four food groups. You need to eat the full meal of God if you want to be the kind of person that God wants you to be. You will have nutritional deficiencies if you only eat one of the four food groups just like you will have theological deficiencies, life Practice deficiencies if you only read one quarter of the word of God. You need all of it. All of it. And what is great is in the weeks to come. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to be looking at that prophecy that Walt read this morning, Micah chapter 5. And then in the weeks to come, we'll be looking at Psalm 145, and we'll do a whole series on the attributes of God, and I hope that it will be a good blessing to you. Let's pray, and then the elders come up and make an announcement. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we are able to just come here and just study it. Father, there is so much to say about love and how love is the fulfillment of the law. So many interesting things to read and look at and ponder. Uh, Your word is so simple in some ways and so complex in others. We thank you that we can always dig from it and find gold and that we can never exhaust the resource that it is. Father, help us all to be Christians of all the Word of God, not just one part of it. Father, may we walk before you in holiness and truth, for we know that's what you have called us to do. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.